together. <laughs> Father, thank you for these studies in Nehemiah. We pray that as you have taught us, as you have blessed us, so you will continue to instruct us. And that, Lord, today there would be a word in season spoken to our hearts. We ask this for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. I recently read a remarkable story about a bishop in the 16th century. Thomas Cooper was not only a clergyman, a bishop, he was also the author of Cooper's Thesaurus. It was a thesaurus actually used later by Shakespeare and others. While preparing to write his thesaurus. Cooper spent eight years writing background notes for the volume. During these painstaking years, almost a decade of research, he amassed literally thousands of pages of notes. One day, however, Cooper went out of the house And he left his notes lying unguarded on his desk. His somewhat unstable wife, Dinah, who was a little bit worried that the study was wearying him, decided to burn all of his notes. When Cooper returned, uh, some hours later, he could see... And he could still smell eight years of his life's work gone up in smoke. Now, I can hardly imagine the feelings that Cooper would have felt on that day. But as the saying goes, I think I know a man who does. Because as we turn once again to the book which bears his name, we find Nehemiah. A man who grafted for 12, not 8, 12 long years in the service of the Lord. He had journeyed all the way from Persia to Jerusalem. He was the architect behind the reconstruction of the broken down walls of the holy city. And not only so, but he remained for 11 further years as governor to oversee the spiritual reforms in the nation. But one day, like Thomas Cooper, he went out for a little while, trekked back to Persia from whence he came. And sometime after that, his nose was bothering him. What was going on back in Jerusalem? Were the people still faring well spiritually? So he returns once more to the holy city. And when he arrives, what he discovers to his horror 
is that his 12 years of labor has gone up in smoke. Or indeed, if we change it to a more appropriate picture in our series, what he has built up is now found crumbling. Hence our sermon title this morning, A Return to the Ruins. Now, how would Nehemiah respond to this? How would he react? We're going to find out this morning as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Would you turn then to the final chapter of this book? And we're going to read the whole of the final chapter. It really hangs together. Nehemiah 13. In some ways, quite a sad chapter. Also a chapter of great courage. And a chapter that teaches us much about God's mercy. Nehemiah 13, from verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil, prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon's reign, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Mathtaniah, their assistant because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, 
and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contribution of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. Well, this is the reading of God's word. What an explosive final chapter. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of those fireworks displays that we sometimes go to. Just when you think the last fireworks have lit up the night sky, uh, there is sometimes a long pause, and then there is a barrage, a final explosion of fireworks, 
which lights up the horizon. And so it is that as we perhaps imagine at the end of chapter 12, uh, that we're coming to the, the end of the story, that we've approached the plateau, and suddenly we find this explosive 13th chapter, which is such a challenge. And as we look at it this morning, I want to consider it under three headings. First of all, a fickle people. Secondly, a faithful man in the person of Nehemiah. And thirdly, a favorable God. So let's begin with a fickle people. A fickle people. Now I wonder, as I announced that this morning, whether that at all surprises you. That as we come to the end of the book, this people should be called fickle. While it is true that throughout the Old Testament, God's people are all too typically described as faithless and fickle, surely a better expectation lay in our hearts for this generation. While we still have fresh in our minds the promises they made back in chapter 10. How just a few years earlier, this generation of the Lord's people had one and all made their decisive and detailed commitments to the Lord. In both the verbal form and the written form, they had pledged, hadn't they, that they would obey God's law in its fullness. As we move back the chapters into chapter 9, we remember their outstanding confession of sin. We think back even into chapter 8, when the Word of God had so penetrated their soft hearts. Why, we might even perhaps talk about the revival they had experienced in chapter 7 through 12. You would have thought that this group of people were set up spiritually for life. And when you add into that also the leadership that they had enjoyed under Nehemiah, his godly guidance, there really was hardly a leader like him. You would have thought that these folks' spiritual lives would continue to progress. But what seemed a sure thing ended up to be not so. And as Nehemiah comes back to the city, he can hardly believe his eyes as he surveys the kinds of things that are going on as opposed to the situation when he left it. In just a few short years, we don't know whether it was one year or, or maybe eight or ten years, but in a short period of time, there had been enormous regression. For example, as he looks around the city, the first and obvious thing he notices is the defiled temple. The temple was the place where God's holy presence was most especially present. It was correspondingly a place where only God's holy people should be. Foreigners were not permitted into the temple. Yet verses 1 to 3 show us, firstly, that in this intervening period, foreigners had been allowed into the assembly of Israel in general. And even more specifically, 
verses 4 to 9 divulge that foreigners were even being allowed into the temple itself. This Ammonite, Tobiah, has even been given an apartment within the temple complex. Eliashib, the priest, who is a bit of a mate of Tobiah, gives him what used to be a storeroom for temple articles and for grain. It's a vowed enemy of the Jews, for you remember, this is the same Tobiah who had opposed the building of the walls, who had even sought to threaten and kill the Jews. Here he is being offered a home within the heart of the Jewish temple. I mean, this would be rather like the new Glasgow Celtic manager, Tony Mowbray, being offered a luxury apartment within Ibrox Stadium. That's what this was like. They brought the foe into the heart of their place of worship. And as he also looks around the city, it's not just the temple, but he also notices the dried up tithes as well. Now this related to the temple. The temple had servants known as Levites and priests. And the Levites and priests were responsible for the practical service within the temple. They did this very often on pretty much a full-time basis. And so they needed the provision of the wider population to make a livelihood. In fact, it commanded within the law of God that the people should give a tenth of their offerings. It was called tithing that they should give these tithes to the Levites and priests, that they should fill up storerooms within the temple with grain and other such things so that they had food to eat. But as Nehemiah is looking around the temple, he discovers a strange thing. Because there are hardly any Levites in the temple. There are hardly any priests within the temple. And what he discovers is that the tithes have dried up. And because there is no food for the Levites to eat, they have to go home. They return to their own fields because they have to put food on the table. And then Nehemiah observes even more problems. Thirdly, the commercialized Sabbath. In verses 15 to 22, Nehemiah sees that on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, uh, things had become commercial within Jerusalem. God had commanded the Jews not to work on this day, but many of them were working. They were buying, verse 16. They were selling, verse 15, on the Sabbath. And then fourthly, and perhaps worst of all, Nehemiah notices, lastly, the compromised marriages of the people. That contrary to God's law, Jewish parents were marrying off their children to foreign men and foreign women. This was something that was clearly forbidden within God's written law. Now, again, as we pan back from the specific details of their disobedience, I think the thing to really notice here is the surprise element of this sin that it really was unexpected, you might have said. 
that these folks would have strayed in such a blatant fashion. In fact, if we had more time this morning, I could take you back into chapter 10. I could take you through the commitments that they had made on that day. And for each of the four breaches, or the four sins in chapter 13, I could show you a corresponding commitment they had made. They had said that they wouldn't defile the assembly with foreigners. They had pledged they wouldn't neglect tithing. They had promised before God that they wouldn't trade on the Sabbath. They had vowed they wouldn't marry their sons and daughters off to foreigners. But they had done these things because they were a fickle people. As you and I so often are not only faithless, but we are fickle. We promise one thing and then later we do another. I think it's a reminder to us that even the best of God's people are capable of doing the worst in the end. Even the Christian, with the closest walk in their early years, has the potential to stray far from the Lord in later years. Oh, no one thought that their love would grow cold. No one imagined on the day of their baptism that they would end up straying so far. Why, weren't they the ones who served in the Sunday school? Weren't they those who were ever present at the prayer meeting? I mean, weren't they an elder in the church? Weren't they a pastor in the church? And yet many of us can think of such people who were those things and are not those things any longer. They have wandered away in a period of time from the Lord. Now, before we point the finger at anyone else, let us be sure to recognize the waywardness of our own hearts today. Because as Christians, we must understand that sin is an ever-present problem for each of us. It does not disappear when you become a Christian. True, we know that for the Christian, the penalty of sin has been paid for on the cross. We also know that the power of sin is now resistible as a Christian. There were some things before that you couldn't not do. And now through the Holy Spirit, you are able to refuse those things. But while the penalty of sin has been paid, and while the power of sin has diminished, the Bible teaches that the presence of sin remains until that moment when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not aware of that today, you are a sitting duck. The most vulnerable Christian is he or she who believes that their sin is no longer a big issue. Who doesn't think that in five years' time they could be nowhere. Better to say with the hymn writer, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you sense that waywardness in your own heart? It is better to be vigilant every day to see if there are signs that we're going backwards and not forwards. Now, as we often stray 
even in our Christian lives, it is good to know that there are others around us who can notice these things. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. That means that sometimes when you are straying, you may not realize that you are straying. But I would hope that in a context of a church, that if I was beginning to, to just move away from the devotion that I had known before, that someone would come and pull me up and say, Colin, what's going on? And that's what we see next happening in the chapter. We thank God for people like Nehemiah, who doesn't just leave us to wander off. And so from a fickle people, we turn secondly to a faithful man. A faithful man. The adjective used of Nehemiah in verse 14, he is faithful. And he shows his faithfulness by confronting, not abandoning, the sins of the people of Jerusalem. I mean, how tempting would it have been, having put in all this work, to have seen uh, the people's folly and fickleness and said, well, I've done my bit. And if you're going to go your own way, then that's up to you. Many people believe that Nehemiah was probably up and around retirement age at this point. He could have said, you know, I'm 65 now. I don't have time to be bothering with reforming you all over again. But praise the Lord that Nehemiah didn't say these things. While the people are faithless, he is faithful to the end. He's going to dig it out in the trenches here, if need be. And he springs into immediate action. He's really action man throughout this passage. The first thing that he does is he cleanses the temple in verses 8 and 9. Particularly incensed with this Ammonite living it up within the sanctuary of the Lord. And he finds the room in question. As far as we know, he doesn't ask anyone's permission. He doesn't have a, a discussion as to whether this would be a nice idea. He doesn't even bother that Tobiah uh, isn't around and doesn't know about it. He goes into the room. He gathers all of Tobiah's household stuff, his clothes, the bed, whatever else was in there, and he chucks it out on the pavement. And then he fumigates the room because he was purifying it. There was an unholy stench, if you like. And then he begins to put back into it what should have been in there all along the tithes for the temple servants and the articles for the temple worship. And then next we see him moving to further action. Secondly, he restored the tithe. Responding to this problem of the dried up giving and the dried up tithing, he rebukes the officials who have abandoned their posts. Whether there's food or there's no food, your call is to serve the Lord, he says to them in verse 11. And then he orders the people to, to re-implement their giving again in accordance with God's law. Next on his hit list, he turns to the commercialized Sabbath. And again, uh, he doesn't uh, soft pedal. He enforces the Sabbath. Remember, he is the governor of Jerusalem. He has authority to organize things and to make things happen. He rebukes the nobles in verse 17 for their negligent leadership with regards to the Sabbath. And then he makes this practical provision in verse 19. 
See, one of the big problems was that the foreign merchants were coming into Jerusalem on the Sabbath and they were selling their wares. Nehemiah has a little think about this. And he says, there's an easy solution to the problem of these foreigners selling. We'll lock the gates and we'll shut them out on the Sabbath. He puts guards on the gates to ensure that no one can get in. And we even have this remarkable occasion where he basically threatens some of the foreign merchants who were camping outside, hoping they might somehow get in on the Sabbath. It's pretty dramatic stuff here. And then, thirdly, uh, fourthly, Nehemiah deals with the compromised marriages. And what does he do in response to this? Well, he regulates all future marriage unions within the people of God. He rebukes the sinners in question. There's a lot of rebuking going on verbally within this chapter. Uh, Sometimes there's a place for verbal rebuke within a church as well. And then he makes the people take an oath not to marry off any more of their uh, sons or daughters to foreigners. He even preaches a sermon to them. As far as we can tell, Nehemiah wasn't really a preacher. That was Ezra that did the preaching and the teaching. But but here, uh, Nehemiah tries his hand at it, and he preaches them a sermon about Solomon. And he says to them, remember where the marriages of Solomon to foreign wives led Solomon. Well, this certainly was decisive action on all these fronts. As Nehemiah moves from one thing to another, patching up all the mistakes that had been made in his absence. Now, some people have actually found Nehemiah a little bit too decisive in his activity. In fact, uh, they've said, really, as you look at Nehemiah throughout this chapter, uh, he's awfully aggressive, you know. He's terribly angry throughout all of this. I mean, he even beats people up and uh, pulls out their beard and so on. And it is certainly true. We cannot skirt over what God tells us in his word. Some would even suggest that Nehemiah was being sinfully angry. Sure, the people sinned, they would say, but Nehemiah's dealing with, with this was over the top. I wonder if you think it was over the top. Well, what I would say is that nowhere in the text is it reflected back to us that Nehemiah sinned. There certainly is no suggestion that God was unpleased, displeased with this. And perhaps let me suggest to you today that, that much of our discomfort about Nehemiah's anger at sin is probably more due to our lack of holiness than Nehemiah's lack of holiness. In fact, in this chapter, it's Nehemiah who is obsessed with the holiness of God. Derek Kidner writes, throughout this chapter, Nehemiah stands out from his contemporaries by his refusal to allow for a moment that holiness is negotiable. His anger shows his love for holiness, not his lack of holiness. It's a holy anger which burns against that which is unholy. It is not unlike the anger of the Lord Jesus, who, you remember, when he found great sin within the temple, was greatly angry and went on a rampage within the temple 
cleaning it out, throwing over tables. And Jesus, we know, was angry at sin, but he did not sin in his anger. And I wonder if that perhaps is what we see within this chapter. You know, I wonder this morning, as we stop and think about this, what sorts of things make us angry? What are the things that get you into a rage? Let me ask you this. Is sin something that makes you angry? Is sin something that makes your blood boil? Not just within other people. Uh, Sometimes we can get more angry at the sins of others, but even the sin that you see within your own heart, especially. Does it make you angry? You know, if you never get angry at sin, as God gets angry at sin, then you will probably never be moved to do anything about it. You will probably never repent of it, and you will probably never confront it, because you just won't be bothered about it. Let me ask you this question today. Are you angry enough at sin in your life? Are you angry enough at sin? Does it? Do you know, some of the holiest people that I know They are the most gentle people, they're the most gracious people, but they're also the people that have a great displeasure with sin, particularly in their own lives. Related to that, I want to ask you a second question this morning. Do we welcome those? Do we welcome those who confront us with waywardness that they see in our lives? What a blessing that is to have people like that. I mean, where would these folks have ended up if Nehemiah had just shrugged his shoulders? You know, he wasn't angry, he wasn't bothered, and he didn't bother confronting them. They would have been goners. And we similarly should rejoice in real friends who will come to us and call us to account. A friend of mine is starting a church plant over in Glasgow. And he was telling me that one of the things he's saying to his church members that for each of them to grow in their Christian lives, he says you need four people. You need to find four people. You need to find a Paul. You need to find a Timothy. You need to find a Barnabas. And you need to find a Nathan. Now, Paul is uh, somebody who's more mature in the faith to encourage you. Timothy is someone younger in the faith that you can pour your life into. Barnabas is obviously an encourager. But what about Nathan? I was kind of struck when he said, a Nathan, find a Nathan. You remember who Nathan was, don't you? He was one of the most courageous men who ever lived because he was a servant of one of the most powerful kings, indeed, God's most powerful king in the Old Testament, David. And one day he recognized that David had desperately sinned. And at the threat of him losing his head, he went to David one day and he said, you are the man, you have sinned, and you need to repent. You know, I think my friend is right. Sometimes, hopefully not too often, we need a Nathan. We need a Nehemiah who will come and say, this is not acceptable. Now, as we think about this and the great sinfulness that requires such confrontation from others. What we need, of course, is not simply the help of men, but ultimately the help 
of God. We need the mercy of God for fickle people. We need the grace of God, ultimately. We need the favor of God. And we turn, finally, in our study, in this book, to a favorable God. Fickle people need a favorable God. In fact, even faithful men, like Nehemiah, need a God of favor. Even Nehemiah, as we come to the conclusion of this study, needs to know God's mercy on his ministry. One of the things chapter 13 reminds us that we wouldn't otherwise have without it is the fact that the best of men are men at best. See, if we only had chapters 1 to 12, we might be concluding at the end of this that Nehemiah was a leader par excellence and that he was the all-conquering hero of this period of Israel's history. Because everything he touched turned to gold. But this 13th chapter is a reminder to us that despite his remarkable fortitude, still without God's favor, his efforts were futile. We can see in this chapter, for the first time perhaps, the limits, the limits of Nehemiah's leadership. We've already seen one of the evidences that he cannot stem the people's depravity. After all his reforms, after 12 years of work to bring these people into a better relationship with God, the people have still strayed. And even in this 13th chapter, while it is true that Nehemiah reforms the people from an outward perspective, there is no indication within the chapter that there was an inward reform. We don't see in this 13th chapter the confession of sin among the people. We don't see the tears that we found earlier in the book. The best of leaders can compel outward behaviors, but only God can change hearts. And I think Nehemiah was humble enough was realistic enough to realize this himself. Notice the prayerful dependence that we once more see throughout this chapter. Four times, interspersed throughout chapter 13, he prays. He does it amidst the action. He does a work of reform, he stops and he prays. He does another reform, he bandages up another problem, then he pauses and he prays. He reforms, and then he prays. He reforms, and then he prays. And he does it in that order. Now, why does he do that? Because he recognizes that his works are limited in what they can achieve. And so he takes his prayers to the God for whom nothing is impossible. He says, Lord, I've taken these people as far as I can take them. Your favor needs to take them the rest of the way. The four prayers begin with the word, remember, 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 four times over. Once is a prayer to remember the defiled priests. It's a prayer to remember them in judgment. Three times over, however, he prays for God to remember his work. Verse 14, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out 
what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22 again, Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your unfailing love. And actually the last verse of the book, very appropriately, is a prayer of dependence. The very last thing he does is pray, Remember me with favor, O my God. Now, let's get down to brass tacks here. Is Nehemiah praying a selfish prayer? Some people have suggested that. Remember me, remember me, three times over. Remember me. You say, Nehemiah's praying just for blessing on himself, blessing on his work and ministry. Well, I think the first response I would make to that is, even if he is doing that, is it such a bad thing? Is it such a wrong thing for each of us to want our work and our ministry and our service for the Lord to count? I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's something we should want for the glory of the Lord. But even with this in mind, I think we need to really say here that Nehemiah isn't just praying for himself in any case. For you see, when Nehemiah is saying to the Lord, remember me, he's really in effect saying, remember my work and my ministry. He's saying, Lord, I've put all of this effort in, but in the years to come, you're going to have to take forward the work that I'm doing and bring it to completion. What was his work? His work was to reform the people of God. And so really, as he's praying in what seems to be for himself, he is in actual fact, including within that, his prayer for this people. He's saying, Lord, don't let them slip. Don't let them fall. Remember me and them with favor. I think it's because he's praying for a fickle people that he brings up the characteristics of God that he does He refers in verse 22 to God's mercy and love. And in verse 31, to God's undeserved favor. Why? Because to bless a nation who are so wayward as this, you would need to be a merciful God. You would need to be a God of favor to not blot out this work and this people who had strayed so far in such a short time. Nehemiah knows that his only hope for lasting fruit in his ministry is the mercy of God. The very last verse of Nehemiah, I I love it in a way, it ends with the recognition that Nehemiah was not the Messiah. He needed a Messiah. He needed the favor of God. Of God. And 800 years later, after he voiced that prayer, after he cried out for mercy and for the favor of the Lord, God answered it. Sometimes we think that those prayers as we sang for God's mercy are going to happen next week. Centuries later, the Lord answered that prayer, not only in the land of Israel, but for the whole earth. And he poured out, he unleashed his great favor on all mankind as God sent into the world his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the Lord Jesus did so much more than Nehemiah could ever have achieved. He didn't just rebuild a physical construction such as the walls of Jerusalem. He didn't just seek to reform outwardly the people of Israel. But he actually began a process of renewal for the whole world on the inside. Jesus' building project was to rebuild a world broken by sin. And we know the story that he went to a cross that he was crucified for sins in order that that brokenness might be healed and made whole. I want to ask you this morning, whether you're here for the first time or maybe you've been here throughout the series, where do you stand before God? Are you still broken before him in your sinfulness, in your waywardness? Is your life in ruins? That's been the series, hasn't it? Restoring the ruins. I wonder if the ruins this morning is not some physical construction. I wonder if it's your life today. And uh, you've tried renovating it. You've tried patching it up. You've failed to do that. You've failed to find the fulfillment that you were looking for in life. We've seen so graphically this week that you can be the king of pop. You can be a billionaire. And you can still be broken on the inside. If that describes you today, you need to know that only the Lord Jesus Christ can take the ruins of your life and rebuild them again. Come to him today. Turn from sin. Trust in him as your savior. And he will rebuild your life, starting from today. And oh, if you are a Christian this morning, this passage has a warning. It has a challenge to each of us here, each and every one of us. Maybe today our life is in danger of going off the track. Maybe you've just started to veer in very small things. But if you think of a tanker in the ocean, if it just moves a slight bit off course over a long period, it ends up a long way from where it should be. Maybe that's our situation today. We know that we're coasting a bit spiritually. Or let me say to you this morning, maybe it's much more stark than that for you today. Here's the second question. Is your life reverting to the ruins? Have you actually gone back? You know, the the, the Lord had been building up your life for quite a number of years. You'd been growing in your faith year on year. But in these last years, things have been deconstructing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Maybe you would say, prone to wonder, Lord, I know it. I've got the t-shirt just now. Cry out afresh today for God's mercy. He's the same gracious, merciful God. And don't shut out the Nehemiahs in your life. Let them in to pull you back and to draw you close again to the Savior. Jesus Christ is able, as he began that project the first time, to begin a rebuild in your Christian experience. Let's pray.